I'm Afshin Ratansi and welcome back to Going Underground, broadcasting all around the world from the Arabian Peninsula, where Arab leaders continue to oppose NATO nation refusals to back a ceasefire amidst the slaughter in Gaza. After a weekend of global protest against Washington's NATO arming of Israel to slaughter thousands upon thousands of Palestinian children, let's go straight to Washington, D.C. Dr. Hussein Abish, the senior resident scholar at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington and author of the book, What's Wrong with the One-State Agenda? Why Ending the Occupation and Peace with Israel is Still the Palestinian National Goal joins me now. Thanks so much, Dr. Abish, for uh, coming on. Uh, you've studied the region for, for years. How surprised are you? And can you ever remember a Egyptian president, sitting Egyptian president, refusing to even meet with a sitting U.S. president? Sisi, of course, refused, as did the King of Jordan, whilst the Eastern Mediterranean was being filled with Joe Biden's warships. Yeah. Uh, it's been a very, very long time. I mean, I think you'd have to go back to the era of the of the first Gulf War, the 1990-91 uh, Iraqi invasion of Kuwait and the U.S. response to that to find senior Arab leaders, not necessarily Egyptian ones, but senior Arab leaders um, avoiding uh, the United States, avoiding being seen with American uh, senior officials, et cetera. So it's been a long time. Um, this is, uh, sort of onslaught by Israel is is extraordinary, for sure. And um, I think at the moment that the meeting was due to happen, uh, there was such a ramping up of uh, deaths of Palestinians in Gaza that it was predictable and uh, not terribly surprising to see that happen. Um, since then, you've seen Mahmoud Abbas meeting with uh, Anthony Blinken and other Arab leaders meeting with senior American officials. So I think, you know, the rift is is temporary but it was politically necessary at the time for the Arab leaders to do that in the same way that Biden felt a political imperative um, on several levels as the American president, but also as the, the leader of the Democratic Party um, to sort of bear hug Israel. Uh, and, um, you know, so everyone is kind of disgusted with each other for doing things that are they find politically advantageous. So you think it's uh, perfectly repairable, this? Because the UAE, uh, with China, repeatedly put uh, motions for a ceasefire backed by the UN Secretary General, of course. I mean, what do you think will stop it being repairable? Because obviously the well, United, it, United States has been bombing Syria in the past yeah. few days. Uh, if that starts to ramp up, do you think that might be a red line for GCC countries? Um, no, I don't think so, because I think the, the U.S. attacks in Syria and, and anything the U.S. does in Iraq are going to be very limited. And in response to um, attacks by pro-Iranian militias on, on American forces, I think the United States um, is in a, an interesting position where the one thing that all four major actors in this equation, uh, in terms of the war spreading from Gaza, that is to say uh, the U.S., Iran, Israel, and Hezbollah, all agreed sort of from October 8th until now that it would be much better if the war didn't spread, if it were contained to Gaza. And that, that's probably why it hasn't spread and, and why it won't. On the other hand, there is a lot of activity by uh, pro-Iranian militia groups, um, Hezbollah on the Lebanese border, by uh, Kitab uh, Hezbollah in Iraq by groups in Syria to peck at the at the conflict to make to do station identification to make sure that they have some kind of indemnification against charges that they didn't do anything at all to help Hamas or to help the Palestinians 
Uh, so they can point to things that they've done. Uh, and I think the Americans are trying to draw a red line and say, all right, so there's going to be a response, but it's all going to be very measured. And especially if you look at the violence between Israel and Hezbollah around the Lebanese border, then both sides have been very careful to stay within what you might call the rules of engagement that have appertained since 2006, 2007, since the last big war that they had. Uh, and they're sticking within about a mile of the border in both cases. There haven't been too many people uh, killed on either side. And, and uh, I think there is an understanding that there will be violence, but that nobody really wants uh, an all-out war, with the exception of Hamas, which was kind of counting on it, but they're not going to get it, apparently. Why do you call them pro-Iranian militias because clearly Hamas Hamas supported American policy in Syria and uh, Hezbollah very keen on saying it is not taking orders from I mean I suppose one could say Britain is a proxy of the United States or Western European well, countries I didn't say proxy I said pro you could certainly call Britain a pro-American country you could call all the Gulf countries pro-American countries right so it's not an insult to say that someone is pro-Iranian when they're connected deeply to Iran. I, I don't think that Hezbollah is taking orders from Iran at all. In fact, my impression is that uh, Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, got put in a very difficult position uh, because, um, you know, when he sort of consulted with the Iranians, I, I believe, and there's a lot of evidence to suggest this, that um, he was told, do what, by the, by Iran, do what you like. It's up to you. We're not going to tell you what to do. And that then sort of denied him the indemnification of being able to say, well, but Iran. So it was all on him, and he's, I think, independently decided it's not a great idea. Hamas is aligned with Iran to some extent, but it's also not. And I don't think there's any doubt that neither Iran and the Supreme National Security Council in Tehran nor Hezbollah had any inkling of the attack that Hamas was planning on October 7th. They, they'd heard vague things about a potential action against Israel. And they kind of generally said that might be a good idea and they might support it. But, you know, there's no reason to think that um, that Hamas was acting as a proxy of Iran. It was not. Uh, it was acting on its own, which is and why yet, it's And not yet, if you watch uh, American mainstream media, and it's uh, arguably your misfortune to do so there in the U.S., why then the framing? Why, <laughs> why? Well, a lot of people do, of course. Why, uh, yeah, they do. why the framing endlessly about well, the fact that this is Iran and that Biden sent those warships to threaten Iran when, in fact, they're not even in the Persian well, Gulf or they're, they're actually up in the eastern Mediterranean. Yeah, it was it was a, an, a kind of a, an intimidation saber rattling against Hezbollah, not not against Iran. Um, look, um, the American broadcast media, you have to excuse uh, for a second the reportage, not the commentary, but the reportage in the major papers in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, is much more serious. But when you turn on the television, you get a bunch of dumbed down garbage. Okay. And, and that's just the way it is. That's why I never turn on the television under any circumstances. And um, you'll lose brain cells if you do in this country. Um, well, you include so CNN there, say. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, wholeheartedly. Yeah, except when I'm on, which is very rare. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I include, of course, very much so. Look, they're trying to spoon feed the public a simple narrative that usually involves goodies and baddies. And when it gets complex, it gets complex between Republicans and Democrats or between Republicans and other Republicans or Democrats and other Democrats. The, the notion 
that there is a complex world out there where Hamas can be, you know, close to Iran in some ways, but far from it in others, and it doesn't act as a proxy at all, where Hezbollah sometimes does act as a client of Iran. But in this case, clearly, they were not getting any instructions from the Iranians, which was actually, I would argue, problematic for the leader of Hezbollah. It made it more difficult for him to say no, which he did. Um, it's just simple. It's dumbed down. You know, if you were to tell people the whole story, you'd have to begin at the beginning because most Americans know nothing about the Middle East and they care less, actually. And it's easier just to tell them Iran bad, uh, the Arab militias are bad, pro-Iranian militias are bad. Also, the pro-American Arab countries are not great and they may also be bad. Israel is, is good, except occasionally, and the U.S. is always good. There, there's your yeah, but you they know, can't hide. Difficult. They can't hide the images that are coming no. out uncensored of uh, dead, right. killed children, yeah. children killed by American weapons uh, from the no, current that's conflict. That's true, and and it has had an impact on thinking, especially among Democrats, where you've now got forty-six percent of Democrats of liberals in the United States thinking that the U.S. has gone too far in supporting Israel. You still have three quarters of Republicans backing Israel all the way and thinking it has responded correctly. Uh, there's a degree of hawkishness there. There's a degree of racism there. There's a degree of Islamophobia there. There are all kinds of things that are bubbling around in the Republican Party that skew it to be pro-Israel, even when there are these images of piles of dead children. Right? It's causing a lot more discombobulation among Democrats. And you, you see that um, the Biden administration is inching towards, uh, you know, more and more calls on Israel for, a, a, you know, a, a, a ceasefire. They call it a humanitarian pause. That's a that's a euphemism for a temporary ceasefire. They're they're talking about different things. Though. Israel is talking about an hour or two. The United States is talking about a day or two or three or four. Uh, so they're not on the yeah, same well, page. Yeah, cl well, clearly they've lost the entire world in this refusal yes. to calls yeah, for a ceasefire. But is that the lasting uh, lasting uh, legacy of October the 7th? I mean, there have been many, many uh, atrocities, obviously, since 1948. Yeah. Is the lasting uh, legacy of the Hamas-led uh, attack on October the 7th not so much putting Palestine front and center again in the global imagination, but... Yeah creating and rejuvenating a huge tension between the peoples of Western Europe and the United States against their leaders? Uh, no, I don't think it's that exactly. I mean, there's a disagreement, but it's not, you know, people aren't... People don't really care about Gaza that much there. Not that much, no. Uh, there are pockets who do. The Arab Americans, the American Muslims, the very progressive left elements on the right, the, I would say, honestly, frankly, the anti-Semitic right, uh, you know, who, who get... And many Jews as well. We saw a huge yeah, Jewish yeah, group. Yeah, that's, that's a pro-Palestinian left. That includes a lot, a lot of progressive left uh, people in the United States are Jewish, and they are uh, pro-Palestinian and anti-Zionist, and they've been very loud. Uh, and yeah, it definitely includes them. Uh, so you've got this mix of people, but they're sort of fringe when you put together the whole sort of 350 million Americans. They don't add up to it. They're loud, but they don't add up to a very big number. Most Americans are, you know, they're not happy with what's going on unless they're racist Republicans. But basically, 
Democrats are not happy, but they're not going to abandon Biden over this in the main. Uh, and I mean, I, I saw polls. I saw polls. Anti-Defamation League poll: forty percent of Americans yeah. think Israel treats Palestinians like the Nazis treated Jews. I saw fifty-eight percent in the Times of Israel: fifty-eight yeah. percent of Americans against the uh, excessive counterattack by Israel. These are big that's poll numbers, aren't they? So that's these, are was, massive, that's exactly these are massive. These are massive disparities yeah. between the House of Representatives uh, censuring right. Rashida Tlaib. Yeah, exactly. So that's I mean, right. There is there is a noticeable gap. This is what I'm I'm talking about, especially on the left of center, center left, and then all the way to the left. In other words, that on the in among Democrats, there there is a, a visible distinction between what the party and national leaders are saying and what half of the Democrats are thinking. You know, and and that's very much clear. On the other hand. Um, as I say, I, I think there are not that many people who are going to go to the polls in 2024 looking at Donald Trump as the alternative and are going to say, well, the hell with Biden. There will be those, especially in, in pockets of Arab American and American Muslim communities. But I think in the end, it, it, it has a limited resonance. Usually, you got to understand, foreign policy in the United States is always a secondary issue unless Americans are getting killed. Right. So when when the Iraq war is going on, when, you know, after 9-11, when it, and things like that, then it's a big deal. OK, but Dr. Zainabish, in, in terms of elections, Dr. Mm -hmm. Zainabish, I'll stop you there. More from the senior resident scholar at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington after this break. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still here with the senior resident scholar at the Arab Gulf States Institute, Dr. Hussein Abish. Dr. Abish, uh, we were just talking uh, before the break about the fact that yeah. people don't care that much about foreign policy ahead of the next general election, of which, uh, of which the uh, persecuted opposition leader Donald Trump is clearly uh, leading in the polls. They will, of course, care when it comes to raised uh, oil prices and a wider yes. impact of anything here. This, this yes. Hamas attack occurs and the ensuing carnage in Gaza occurs amidst an environment in which the Saudis refused repeatedly Biden's calls to increase production of oil. Right. Uh, clearly right. normalization uh, with Israel is off the table. Uh, do is. you see uh, what's happening in Gaza together with the global South support of uh, Russia in the U.S. war uh, through Ukraine, creating big tensions for the uh, for the dollars in people's pockets in the United States. Well, we'll have to see. It's overdetermined, right? The value of the currency and the question of inflation and inflation as compared to wages is incredibly complicated to the point of being overdetermined. Right? No one can really predict it. Even the best economists are on very shaky ground when they prognosticate. Right now, um, there is a, a, uh, a full employment situation in the United States, but inflation has damped down the value of wages. So it's a mixed bag for ordinary people. The economy writ large is very strong, but people kind of, in a way, are suffering. If they just assume that they're going to have a job and they do have one, then they are quite upset about how far they're dollars go. On the other hand, um, I'm not sure that Donald Trump is going to present a really attractive alternative because there's every likelihood that he'll be a convicted felon 
before people go to the polls in November of, of next year. Well, I mean, that's uh, that's a separate separate issue to what we're talking about uh, here. And as we know, the more times he's uh, indicted, the higher his poll ratings go. And, of course, Eugene Debs ran Only for office. Only among Republicans. From no, 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 no. Only among, no, amongst, the general public. No, amongst African-Americans and Latinos, uh, uh, yeah. increasingly. Well, then, who would have favored the Democrats. Not among Democrats writ large. Not among the public writ large. Well, anyway, that's, as I say, that is a kind of separate uh, issue. But I've got to ask you then, right. uh, again, about this disparity, apart from Cornell. West, uh, Trump, yes. Biden, all these people support Israel. Yeah. There's no difference. Yes. So there's a complete on, uh, on, the, on is, Gaza. No, there's there a is. complete disconnect here, isn't there? Because if you have 58% yeah. of Americans against Israel's excessive counterattack, and you have 100% yeah. of the candidates running in the election who support the slaughter of children in Gaza, where right. what's happened to democracy in the United States? Well, again, foreign policy is not made. Uh, the, the distance between, unless Americans are dying in large numbers, and I want to make that caveat, unless that's the case, unfortunately, and I think this is one of the really bad things about the distortions of the American political system, it's very hard to get foreign policy to be a major issue in electoral politics. Um, especially at the presidential level. It just really doesn't happen. It's extremely rare. Or, or is so, foreign policy embedded I, here because of the Keynesian militarism, militarism in terms of the share well, prices of Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, Boeing, and well, uh, Yeah, to some Raytheon. extent. Okay, so, yeah, there is a, there is a level of, corrupt, of inbuilt corruption that um, is part of that. However, as you say, I think all the major parties are sort of in, in, generally in favor of that kind of thing, including Trump. I do think there's a difference between Trump's attitude towards Israel and the Palestinians and, and Biden's, which is that um, whereas both of them would support the war in Gaza, as you say, rightly, the slaughter of Palestinians and Palestinian children that's going on now, I do think uh, Biden is going to be quicker than Trump would have been to say that's enough. The other thing is, if you look at uh, the attitude towards the occupation, towards annexation, Trump is all in on annexation. He invited Israel to annex 30% of the West Bank and take the Jordan Valley and all of that. Biden is taking a different attitude, at least you know, in theory. So they're not exactly on the same page, totally. But on the Gaza war, yes, uh, at the moment, it's hard to draw any distinctions. I don't think it's going to drive people, large, large numbers of people in the polls. What about the reputation of the Arab world? I mean, they saw what Putin did uh, as from his terms uh, as regards protecting Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine. He went in and that war continues. And he doesn't care about NATO nation pouring of billions of dollars into Ukraine to fight uh, a war that increasingly looks uh, uh, like a, creating a defeated Zelensky. Why is it well, then? Well, of course, Zelensky denies it's a stalemate and denies what General well, Zeluzhny well, says. It's, it's, but, it's a stalemate. He can deny anything as much as he likes. It's a stalemate. But, uh, but when it comes to Gaza, the Arab world, while putting ceasefire uh, resolutions at the UN, doesn't militarily intervene to attack Israel. What do you think uh, Latin America, Africa, Southeast Asia, and the Global South think of the fact that uh, why is it that uh, other countries, when they go to protect uh, their people, as it were, the Arabs won't. Well, among other, among many, many other things, um, Israel has a large arsenal of nuclear weapons, and Ukraine did not. So, you know, there is a certain degree of. I would argue that once Israel became a nuclear power, and especially when Egypt signed a peace treaty with Israel, 
the idea of a conventional war between Israel and Arab states was essentially taken off the table, which is why um, these attacks on Israel are pursued by non-state actors that don't have an address that are not amenable to the kind of counterattacks from Israel that would involve things like nuclear weapons or, or um, tank divisions and stuff like that. So you've got Israel then forced to go into Gaza on the ground, which is what Hamas was hoping for, I think, to engage in the kind of co close quarter house to house combat that favors guerrilla groups and insurgents over um, regular armies. If you're out in the middle of a field with tanks and airplanes and tactical nuclear weapons, well, the, the bigger the conventional army, the, the, you know, the more advantage it has. But as you get into urban combat, um, you, you find real advantages for guerrilla forces. Well, the United States has lost every war it's ever fought on, on the guerrilla uh, basis like that from Vietnam all, onwards, clearly. All, all countries do. It's not just the United States. The Soviet Union lost, uh, Israel has lost, Saudi Arabia has lost in, in uh, Yemen. Uh, you can't do it. It's I think not, arguably it's Russia and Chechnya, I suppose, would be one. Yeah, Russia and Chechnya. But, but I think so. Uh, just yeah. tell me what you think of this uh, growing friendship between Saudi Arabia and Iran after the brokered peace. Because we saw after the October the 7th, uh, unprecedented foreign minister visit from Iran, mm -hmm. I think in the middle of the night to Saudi Arabia. We see yeah. uh, Prime Minister Raisi visiting uh, MBS yeah. in the, over the weekend. How is it they're so... Uh, I mean, we already obviously see uh, President uh, Assad of Syria visit uh, here mm -hmm. in the UAE. Yeah. How yeah. is it that Saudi Arabia has suddenly become so close to Iran in this way that clearly would uh, annoy uh, Washington? Mm. Well, I'm not sure how annoyed Washington is. Uh, I think they can live with it because what the two countries are coming together on is a quest for stability. Both Iran and Saudi Arabia right now, for their own entirely separate reasons, want regional calm and stability. Uh, and I think the meetings and, and the OIC conference is designed to kind of try and get stability in the region, to, to get everyone on the same page formally that you know wouldn't help anybody if uh, Iran was dragged into this conflict, if the United States came into the conflict, if, uh, if Hezbollah was dragged into the conflict or threw itself in or whatever, that it really, you know, it's bad enough with, as you rightly say, the slaughter of Palestinian children in Gaza, that, that's bad enough. We don't need uh, additional um, you know, conflicts. So I think what's going on here is a meeting of the minds between Riyadh and Tehran that it's much better to negotiate and use diplomacy under current circumstances than to fight even through proxies, right? Even through client groups. And as I say, Hamas acted alone. It did not act as an Iranian proxy group on October 7. Anyone who says that is completely full of it. Um, Hezbollah also in this case, even though Iran has a lot of sway over Hezbollah, it didn't put any pressure on it one way or the other. I think that's totally obvious. It, it's up to you guys. Just, so you know, so if we see this growing, if we see this growing rapprochement around yeah. the region, maybe even with the, the Lebanese uh, resistance groups, yeah. and of course yeah. the multipolar world that is much talked about uh, in BRICS capitals, yeah. is it just a bad time then, bad timing for the Palestinians? They're going to all, I mean, I don't know how many numbers we're talking about, all two million killed. Uh, is it no. just a bad time for the Palestinians that whilst this new world is emerging, it emerged at just the time when you had this puppet uh, yeah. Abbas in uh, hold up in yeah, Ramallah? Maybe. 
Yeah, maybe, maybe. That's an interesting argument. I hadn't re- I really heard that before. I, I think there's some truth to it. There is no address at the moment other than Washington that Palestinians can go to effectively to seek relief, but Washington provides zero relief. In fact, it's supporting the Israelis and until now. It may at some point start to I don't know, uh, pull Israel back, but it hasn't yet. So, um, you know, it, yeah, you may well argue that, it, you know, between sort of the end of the Cold War and the full emergence of a multipolar um, world order, that's a very bad time to be as weak and vulnerable as the Palestinian people are, which would suggest then that maybe Hamas made a, mis- a big mistake in courting a, a big war with Israel at the moment. Now, you can make other cases. Um, but that's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is to say that even if there were a multipolar order, it, there isn't any evidence on the table that anyone is terribly interested in in battling Israel tooth and nail to protect Palestinians. It, you know that sort of the the working thesis behind Hamas's uh, attack on on October seventh. Uh, clearly. And that may not change even when there's a multipolar world order. Okay, well, just briefly and finally, uh, we wouldn't be talking if it wasn't for the Hamas uh, attacks, uh, arguably. But does it mean, uh, as this uh, new world begins, uh, the end of Israel as we look forward to the future? Because all these other countries are uh, clearly, I mean, Israel is subsidized by the United States. I think the economy would collapse uh, without uh, American financing. Do we see the end of Israel on on the cards? I don't. I don't think Israel would collapse without American subsidies. I think it would have real trouble without trade with the West in general. But it had a pretty good growth rate, you know, until this war broke out, uh, third in or fourth in the whole uh, OECD, um, and, and uh, the economy is pretty strong. They, they get a lot of military support from the United States and and private cash, but. Um, I think they could survive without uh, American subsidies. Whether they could survive without American military and diplomatic support, how long they could survive and under what conditions, I think that's an open question. I think their biggest, the biggest threat to them is their own policies, is their own attitude and actions towards the Palestinians. October 7 was the inevitable result of the sum total of Israeli policies since 1967, and especially since 2007, divide and rule of the Palestinians to keep the PA and the PLO in power, Fatah in power in the West Bank, very weak, very corrupted, very institutionally feeble, with waiting for talks that never happened, and to keep Hamas in power in Gaza by funneling money to it and uh, and facilitating it, while at the same time repeatedly, periodically attacking it to keep it weakened and contained. Uh, through these wars. And, uh, you know, I mean, this is the kind of of, of policy of keeping millions and millions of people without citizenship in any country and without a state of their own indefinitely with no horizon for any change in the foreseeable future that guarantees bloodshed. It guarantees bloodlust. It guarantees a kind of infuriated uprising by colonial subjects. We haven't seen it globally for a long time maybe since the FLN in Algeria, but the, you know, the period between 1850 and 1960 was filled in the world with this kind of, uh, of uprisings, whether it's the, the Indian mutiny, uh, uh, the Boxer Rebellion, the Mau Mau's, the FLN, so many others. I mean, I'm just throwing out a few of, of Dr. scores. Dr. Of Sain- yeah, we'll have to have you on to uh, remember more of those different movements. Dr. Sainabish, thank you. Very important.
Thank you yeah, so you're much. welcome. Thank you very much. That's it for the show, and condolences from the whole team here at Going Underground to those bereaved by the ongoing violence here in the Middle East. We'll be back with a brand new episode on Saturday, but until then, keep in touch via all our social media if it's not censored in your country and head to our channel, Going Underground TV on Rumble.com, to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you Saturday.